Uh, when my kids were little, we had them in martial arts for a little while, and we were setting up the mats on one of the days where they did some sparring, and the sensei was clicking the mats together, and while this, while, uh, this was all going on, one of the other instructors said, oh, sensei's on the mat, who wants to spar the sensei? Ha, ha, ha. And I thought, what a great opportunity. Like, how many times in your life can you, like, spar a black belt sensei? I, I put my hand up. And uh, I knew that he wasn't legally allowed to kill me, so I thought, you know, I'm going to put on the foam helmet and the foam gloves and everything and, and go in and try and spar this guy. So I went on, and, uh, and uh, we were in there for, like, eight, eight or nine seconds, you know, because once you get three points, it's over. And so it took him about eight. I know I lasted eight or nine seconds before he got three points on me. And, uh, but what was really I'm never going to forget it is I went in to punch him and uh, I was pretty close to him I thought and uh, as I as I went in to punch him he, he spun around he 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 avoided my punch and all in one fluid motion and he kicked me and I don't know how he did that and it was a little bit like getting kicked by a horse and uh, I and then two seconds later the match was over because he had all three points but um one of the martial arts is uh strategies is judo where you're using your opponent's uh, strength and, and momentum against them. And I don't know if you've ever had anybody take anything you've said out of context, but it feels a little bit like verbal judo. It's like you said something, but this person uh, took it and spun it and fired it back at you, and it's like they spun around and kicked you verbally, and you're like, well, that isn't even actually what I, that wasn't what I, what I said, but here it is now. And uh, over the last three weeks leading up to Easter, we've been looking at these temptations of Christ, and today we're looking at the third temptation, which is a little bit like the devil trying to perform some spiritual verbal judo on Jesus, where, because in the third temptation, the devil quotes the scripture. It's interesting. He doesn't quote the scripture for the first two, but after he gets defeated twice, the final one, he quotes the scripture and he kind of throws it, it's kind of like he's trying to do that spiritual judo thing. Um... And it's very interesting. And so we're going to look at that text today. Our, our text today, uh, as it has been for the last two weeks, is Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, then we're going to go to 1 John 2. And I've been using these, this is the final week we'll be using these three texts. Not because three times is a charm, uh, but because repetition and uh, teaching are friends. Right? We know those of you who are in education know this. Uh, repetition and spiritual formation are friends. And so we're going to go back and we're going to look at Luke 4 and, and 1 John 2 again. In Luke 4, we discover that Jesus is tempted to turn from his heavenly Father in three distinct ways. And in 1 John 2, the Apostle John describes how we are tempted to turn from the Father in three distinct ways. And there's lots for us to, uh, uh, to learn and to see here. So I'll read this now, First Luke 4 and then 1 John 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up on a high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And 
on the hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until a more opportune time. And now 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. So before Jesus could begin his ministry to save humanity, the Son of God was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted so he could fully identify with humanity. The Hebrew writer says, we don't have a high priest who can't identify with us. God was not cheating. He didn't just come as God, but he wasn't a man, and he just kind of cheated all the way through life and did everything perfectly. Jesus Christ, the scriptures teach us, is 100% God and 100% man, and both of those things are true. Attention throughout uh, the wonder of the incarnation of Christ, right? That Jesus is God. And so he identifies with us in all things through these temptations. And so today, as we look at this third way Jesus was tempted, uh, we find that he was tempted to prove who he was uh, by jumping off the temple and displaying this protecting, rescuing power of God. And when we consider the third way the Apostle John said we are tempted, he used a phrase, the pride of life. We're going to look at these two things together. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. The Son of God overcame temptation because he turned to the strength of his Father perfectly. And we give in to temptation because we turn to the strength of our Father inconsistently. But God's grace covers our failure and temptation perfectly, and God's grace is reforming us so that we turn to our Father increasingly. This is what these passages give us. So first, let's ask this question, what was the significance of this temptation? How is it even tempting to jump off of a temple? I think that's a good place to start. Right? Because these are called the temptations of Christ. The Spirit said, led him to be tempted. The Bible says this was a temptation. How is jump, Jesus' jump tempting? Well, for 30 years, Jesus has lived under the humiliation of being human. The voice that spun the universe into existence cried in a filthy feeding trough. Right? He's been called a bastard his whole life. And now he knows he's about to embark on three years of ministry, which is going to be an unprecedented level of rejection by those that he came to save, culminating in a humiliating and horrific death, being crucified on a Roman cross like a common criminal. So that's what Jesus has been, for 30 years he's been dealing with a radical stigma, and now he knows he's headed into three years of incredible suffering, culminating in crucifixion. So that's what's going on. So the temptation was, hey, Jesus, go to the temple, the place where people go to meet God, get everybody's attention, and show them that you're God. You spent your whole life, Jesus, being called a bastard. Utter humiliation. And these people that you came to save... They're going to go, yeah, we love this guy. 
Hosanna, and then a week later they're going to go crucify him. So why don't you just skip the suffering and get to the glory? So why don't you leap off the temple in a single bound and end all the snickering behind your back? Shut the mouths of the skeptics. Land on one knee, eyes like fire, face like flint, fist embedded into the stone on the temple floor. Send a shockwave through the city as everybody looks on and marvels in the presence of the ultimate ground pound as they witness the incredible superhero landing. This is the temptation. Stop trusting that your father is good and that he loves you. Put him to the test. Put him to a trivial little test to prove that he's good, to prove that he loves you, and to prove that you are who you say you are. This is why this is actually a temptation for Christ. Now, so let's, let's quickly look at how the devil tries to do this judo thing. And he quotes the scripture now. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, because the Bible does say, after all, in Psalm 91, that's what the devil quotes, a little excerpt out of Psalm 91, Great exercise for you, P.S. You don't have to do this, but it'd be an eye-opener if you read Psalm 91 when you go home in light of this. So the devil cherry-picks this verse out of Psalm 91. He says, hey, it says right there, he gives his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I mean, you're not even going to, if God is with you, you're not even going to stub your toe. That's the Bible. That's Psalm 91. Let me just quote this and say, if God is with you, no harm will come to you. Right? Isn't that how we interpret the Bible? And isn't that what the scriptures promise? I mean, if God is with us, then nothing bad can happen to us. Isn't that what the Bible says? It seems to say it right here. Jesus, I'm quoting it for you. This is what the devil does. And he quotes that one portion and he twists it. Now, three things about how he twisted it, maybe, that might be worth thinking about. Because the devil spins it and says, God's with you, no harm's going to come to you. Jump, Jesus, jump. Well, three things about that. I mean, first of all, many people who trusted God had lots of harm come to them. Starting in Genesis. I mean, most of the book of Genesis is about a guy named Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? Joseph has a dad who gives him the Technicolor Dreamcoat because his dad doesn't know how to focus on the family. His brothers get jealous. They throw him in a pit. His whole life is suffering. I mean, most of the book of Genesis is about Joseph in this radical suffering. And then in the end, Joseph is delivered from suffering. He comes out, this might be a familiar, a familiar phrase, on the third day, he comes up out of the pit, Right? On the third day, Joseph rises out of the pit and he comes from suffering to glory in the book of Genesis. And here we got Jesus, the greater Joseph, as we're all connecting the dots, who on the third day was supposed to come up out of the grave and deliver us. And so right from the beginning, people who have trusted God and loved God and God has loved have had lots of harm come their way, starting from the beginning of the Bible. So we can think about that. The second thing is that if we, if we interpret that Psalm 91, and I'm going to get to it in a minute to show you this, but to interpret that that promise that the devil takes up and goes, hey, no harm is going to come to you. I mean, that's what Psalm 91 is all about. That makes the promise way too small. That shrinks it down way too small. And thirdly, interpreting the scripture like the devil is not a good idea. You know, I mean, if, if our theological exegesis arrives at the same conclusions as Satan, we should probably start again with the text. You know, when the devil reads the Bible and says, God is with you, nothing bad will happen to you. And we read the Bible, and go, that's what we think. We should start over, you know, because Satan and we agree, right? You know, we don't even need to know Greek to, to come to that conclusion. So it's ill-advised, Ill- interpreting the Bible like the devil. 
And so again, you know, the devil, the term Luke uses here, we've been talking about this, diabolos, right? The slanderer, the one who's coming to bring division. This is what this whole thing is about, to create disunity in the Trinity. Again, if I can get the Son of God to not trust the Father God, I've created division in this triunity, and therefore the people of God have no way to God, because Jesus is the only way. That's what this entire thing is about. And, um, and so we know... Um, that if, if the devil can create division in us the same way, when we go through hard times and suffering or hardships, or death, like, our, like, a, like we were praying for a family even this morning, dealing with the gravity of death. I mean, if we look at it like no harm comes our way, um, we're going to have a crisis of faith. If that's where we arrive at this. People who think about faith like a divine force field always have a crisis of faith. Uh, because like Shakespeare said, put it in Macbeth, each morning, new widows mourn. New orphans howl. New sorrows strike heaven upon the face. And so lots of people actually use the fact that suffering exists, like the philosopher Lex Luthor, who once said, look at all the suffering. Therefore, God cannot be all good. Or if he is all good, he certainly isn't all powerful, because look at all the suffering. And lots of us have struggled with that to say, well, maybe God isn't all good, or maybe he isn't all powerful, because after all, look at all the suffering. So jump, Jesus, jump. Prove it. This is the temptation. The Psalm 91, though, and I'm not going to take the time to read the whole thing, but many of you have committed it to memory because it's a powerful psalm of protection and promise. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my God, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Right? Surely he will deliver you from the snake and the fowl. Right? And you go through the whole thing. The perilous pestilence, the arrow that flies by day, the, the, you know, the, the darkness uh, at night. You go through the whole thing. It's, no plague will come near your dwelling. Ten thousand may fall at your right, hand, so, at your right side, but none of it will come near you. Right? We've read this psalm. We read this psalm. You can read it in its entirety when you get home. But you get through it, and it really sounds like, and this is what the devil does, he, he comes to Jesus like, hey, God is with you. Look at Psalm 91. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. But there's a very clarifying portion right at the end of Psalm 91 where the psalm shifts from a declaration of the promises of God to the actual voice of God. Hence, our eyebrows should raise when God starts talking. And God says right at the end of Psalm 91, prophetically, uh, he says this. He says, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The whole psalm, the promise of protection and provision comes to a place where God says, I will be with him in trouble. Not I will give him a life of no trouble. I will be with him in trouble. I will save him. I will, I will deliver him. I will honor him. And with long life I will satisfy him with salvation. Now, um, when, uh, when, when God is speaking this promise, which the devil, of course, does the spiritual judo thing and tries to trick it, he, he, ends up, he ends up shrinking it. Because God ends this whole promise by saying, I'm going to satisfy him with long life. All the Psalms, by the way, were written for Jesus. That's the, that's the first original intended audience. It's important for us to understand that. All of the Psalms are prophetic. They're all pointing to Jesus, what he's going to do. It was, the, it was the hymn book of the king and the prayer book of the priest. That was the Psalms, right? And Jesus is the great high king, the great priest. Jesus knew the Psalms, read the Psalms, because they, they gave him hope as to what he had to do. So he was always reading the Psalms in light of, yes, I know what God is going to do here. Uh, my father is going to do uh, for me faithfully. 
So he gets to the end of the psalm and it says, I will, sat, I will be with him in trouble, I will deliver him, I will honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What is long life? Because that's the context of this whole promise. It all culminates in this promise of long life. So what is that? The average lifespan on planet Earth is 71. Is that long life? Is 71 years the context of Psalm 91? Was the average lifespan 71, you know, 500 years ago? We have this thing in Canada called retirement age of 65. It's such a beautiful North American luxury because there are 47 nations in the world whose lifespans are not 65 years today. Right? Canada's ranked 13th, we're 82. Japan, if you're Japanese, you're number one at 83. Right? 47 nations of the world, the lifespan is 65. So if you're a Christian in 47 nations of the world and you read Psalm 91, is the promise of long life, you know, great, greater than 65 years? What is this? Here's what it is. That phrase, with long life I will satisfy him in the Greek, is orech yamen asiahu, which could also be faithfully translated with long life, with endless life, with forever life. All those are faithful translations of the Hebrew. Right? With forever life I will satisfy him. It's eternal life. So Jesus knows Psalm 91 pretty good. And he knows that this is an eternal promise, that though I die, I live. And the devil does this you know, judo thing and shows up and plucks the verse up and goes, Hey! Jump, Jesus, jump. Nothing bad will happen to you. And he truncates and shrinks down the promise to be temporal. But Jesus refused to abandon trusting God in favor of testing God because he knew that the promise of protection that the devil was peddling was small and temporal when in fact Psalm 91 is massive and eternal. And so if we reduce the goodness of God to the temporal, if you reduce your idea, maybe you're here and you're not even a... a, you haven't placed your faith in Christ and you've got questions or you're searching, you're seeking, you maybe you're consider yourself a skeptic and you're like, man, you know, one of my big hurdles about there being a God is the suffering and the death and the tragedy in life. And I got to tell you, I couldn't agree with you more on how horrific all of those things are, but I need you to understand and perhaps consider that the suffering on planet Earth is a, is a, is a testament to God's patience. He doesn't want it. He didn't he wasn't the initiator of it. Um, we were the initiator. We are the initiators of it. He is patient with it. And actually through it, he's, he actually brings the opposite of what evil is intended to do. And that is what God has always done. Evil is intended for death and darkness and tragedy. And God, through evil, always, always brings hope and salvation. God is able to use the very thing that is nothing like him for his own purposes. And that's the promise even of Psalm 91. That yeah, I will deliver him out of trouble. I will honor him, and with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation, despite any of the suffering that could be happening you know, in this world or in this life. But when we shrink God, the idea of what God's you know, redemptive plan is, and we shrink it down to be like, hey, is life working out on planet Earth or not? Average life expectancy, 71. We shrink it down. We're always going to be confused. We're always going to have a, a bit of a crisis of faith because we're, we, we're thinking too small into how God is thinking about things eternally. 
I mean, I'll give you an example of this, how Jesus knows this, because we're reading Luke 4, but if you fast forward to Luke 21, Jesus says a bunch of things to his disciples, which are really interesting, in the same sentence. You read, you read Luke 21, and Jesus says, you're, some of you guys are going to be betrayed, some of you will be put to death, you'll be hated by all, but not a hair on your head will perish. How do you say those things in the same sentence and not be a lunatic? Is Jesus a lunatic, or is he the Lord? How do you say some of you are going to be betrayed, some of you are going to die, and don't worry, even though you're going to die, not a hair on your head will will perish? In the same sentence. Because the glorious promise of the gospel transcends the small, minute fragility of this life. That is why we have hope in our suffering. And that is why Jesus, quite frankly, didn't jump. So what does, this, what does Christ's temptation teach us about the source of our temptation? Because at first glance, this temptation doesn't seem relatable, right? Hey, test God publicly and uh, provoke a divine rescue that defies the laws of physics. You know, none of you and I aren't tempted to do that. We're not tempted to jump off of high things to, to prove, you know, that God is good. Um, it doesn't seem like we can relate to this at all. But in the second text we read there in 1 John 2, the Apostle John describes the motivating factor underneath the devil's third temptation. He uses a great phrase. Um, he uses the phrase, phrase, the pride of life. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, which we looked at the last two weeks, and in this week looking at this, the pride of life. What was the pride of life for Jesus in that moment, right? Prove yourself, Jesus. Justify yourself, Jesus. Validate yourself, Jesus. Shut the mouths of the skeptics, Jesus. Jump, Jesus. Pride is something that we can all relate to perfectly. And John uses this Greek word for pride, which is alazania. And that word alazania in the Greek is used all throughout the Greek literature. And it, it often described vagabonds who wandered around claiming uh, empty boasts about having cures to life's problems. They were people who had the pride of life. They just kind of floated around and claimed to have answers, the pride of life. Uh, 300 years before John wrote this text, uh, Aristotle uh, did a work called uh, Nicomachean Ethics. And in book number four, uh, Aristotle uses this phrase, you know, this pride of life, in the same way. And here's Aristotle describes it as, quote, an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources. So in the Greek world, this pride of life, this, this exuberant inward curved trust in your own power and resource was something that the, Greek, the Greco-Roman world was familiar with. So John's like, you know, we're tempted to get into the pride of life, to kind of um, to curve inward on that insolent and empty assurance and trust in ourselves. That's precisely what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do. Stop trusting your father, curve inward and prove yourself. And that's what the pride of life does in us. I, gotta, I can't really trust that God's got my life in his hands. I've got to prove and validate my own, you know, curate my own sense of identity. This is a challenge for all of us in, in many different ways. And so Jesus was tempted to test God through a self-serving, prideful display of power by leaping off the temple in a single bound to prove who he was. But the pride of life is the temptation to give into this empty assurance of trusting in our own power you know, to uh, prove who we are. So the devil says, validate yourself. Jump, Jesus. Jesus said, no. The devil says, Paul, prove yourself. Validate yourself. Paul says, how high should I jump? More often than I care to admit. 
we can do that. But what is God's gospel and what does this grace say to us about this temptation? What does it offer to us in the face of the constant, you know, the constant, ever-present temptation? Um, to kind of essentially forget God and live like he's not there until something gets really bad enough. And like, has it come to that? I guess I'll pray. <laughs> I guess I'll turn to him. What does God's grace give us in the face of future temptation? What, where's the good news for us in all of this? Well, Jesus knew that what the devil was actually trying to get him to forfeit was this eternal protection, this eternal deliverance, right? this eternally blessed life that would come to all of God's children. And he also knew that the only way for that to come was that he lived that perfect life that you and I could never live, that he died the substitutionary death and he rose again, meaning that for you and I, death itself will one day have a funeral. Meaning... That for us, who are united to Christ, through grace and through faith, our inevitable death is not the end. And so the magnitude of the gospel promise, it actually changes the day to day. Maybe you're saying, well, Paul, that sounds great. You're talking about this eternal blessing, that's great. But Monday is still happening, though. Like, what about tomorrow? The magnitude of this gospel, as we rest in it, as we reflect in it, as we gather every week to be curved out of what's up on Monday, so we can be curved out to reflect on this, that... that powerfully changes Monday. Let me give you a little, painted little picture of how the gospel does this beautiful renewing work. I coached football in the city a couple of years ago when my boys were younger, and we, uh, uh, the Warhawks, and there was this little guy on one of the teams, his name was Ben, and Ben was like one of the biggest kids on the team, and he was so afraid, he didn't like to play football. Ben's dad loved football a lot, and Ben didn't really want to be there, and Ben was always like, hey coach, and he had this little voice, he was this big huge kid, hey coach, can I sit on the bench? Not right now, Ben. We really need you, buddy. We need you to do this. We need you to block. He's on the offensive line. Hey, coach. Um, can I? He was always just finding a, a reason not to play football. Because in football, you get hit every 24 seconds. So if you don't like it, it's not a very good game to be playing. And so Ben was like, I'm just being hit. I'm constantly being hit. Some of us feel like we have weeks where we're being hit every 24 seconds. Now, some of us are going through things where it's like sorrow is gripping our heart every 24 seconds. It's like, I'd just like to get out, please. If I could just, if, could I just sit on the bench of life? Right? Some of you have, uh, have uh, education stresses where you'd like to sit on the bench of life. Some of you have corporate and career stresses where you'd like to just sit on the bench of life. And so Ben was always trying to get out of it. One day during the game, championship game, last game of the season, he's standing next to me because I have to send him in. And I'm like, Ben, I'm going to send you in there, buddy. And before I send you in, do you remember the play that I told you to send in? Yeah, coach, I remember. Hey, coach, one thing. Yeah, what is it, Ben? My dad said that if I don't ask you to sit on the bench, I get an Xbox. That's really awesome, Ben. <coughs> Could you get in there and run the play, please, Ben? So... He went in and he got hit and he started crying and he wanted to come out and he came out and I knew that he wasn't hurt because little kids when they play football they're like turtles they get knocked over and then they can't get over because their shells are too heavy and they just kind of do this and you have to roll them over and then they get up and so I said Ben come here pal I said you're not get, you're not getting hurt in there buddy you look at this helmet you have this helmet is protecting you now, I know that in the NFL that's not true but in little league football it's pretty true I said Ben nobody's nobody's gonna hit you that hard here pal so I I hit him on the helmet pow did that hurt. No. Okay, bang, I hit him a little bit harder. Did that hurt? See, that didn't hurt, right? No. And you could see his, his tears started going away, and he started smiling. Bang, did that? And meanwhile, you know, the parents are behind, like, watching me, like, slap a child. I never really thought about what it looked like from behind. They're like, report that coach. But it was motivational to Ben. See, Ben, you're, not, you're protected. You're okay. And, you know, he went in there, 
And uh, he had a totally different attitude. But he was still getting hit every 24 seconds. But I mean, he just, his, his whole way of relating to the experience was different because he just knew he was protected. You and I knowing that from an eternal point of view, we are protected. From an eternal point of view, death is not final for us. From an eternal point of view, we're in God's hands. Nothing can take us out. Our children are in God's hands. Nothing can take them out. Those are the words of Jesus. Right? Baptism means something. It's an, inst- an institution of Christ. Right? We've been baptized into Christ. We're united to Christ. We have an eternal promise. The devil tried to shrink it down and quote a little piece out of Psalm 91 and said, Christian faith means that bad things won't happen to you. And Jesus was like, no, you're not even close. Because we have this. And that changes Monday, church. That changes you. That gives you an unprecedented sense of joy and rest. It's fantastic news. You know, have you ever tried to drink in an experience before because you didn't want the moment to end? Have you ever had that moment where maybe it's the last day of vacation or you're having a nostalgic moment with your children or your grandchildren or, or, or uh, you're with your loved one or, or something happens that's a big deal and you're like, I just want to la- this moment to last. And you're like, you're trying to drink it in with your eyes. You don't want to forget it. We've all had that, those moments, right? Because all of us have as human beings on planet Earth a sense of reality and that, that things are not permanent, we all, have, we all have this sense and understanding that everything, things don't last. The good news of the gospel gives us a point of view with which we understand with great hope. We don't have to cling with a death grip on the temporal for fear that life itself and age itself is stri- slowly stripping things from us. But rather the hope of the gospel infuses us on Monday because Jesus Christ, quite frankly, did not jump. He won for you and I an eternal reality that we get to rest in now. That influences the way that we approach our marriages and parent our children. If you're a student, the way you go to campus. If you're a little guy thinking about going into high school, you have a completely different perspective on on that whole experience because you're God's kid. Your life is in his hands. If you're a university student looking at going to co-op or trying to get work after, and there's a cultural conversation about there not being jobs for you, you have a completely different view of that because you're God's child. Your life is in his hands. You see... What Jesus has accomplished for us is profound. It's incredible. The gospel is not, is not simply good news for you. It is good news for you and it is power in you. Power in you that is changing you. Meaning that day to day, God's grace extends hope and peace toward you. That doesn't require you to stick your head in the sand and not think about reality. It doesn't require you to stick your head in the sand and ignore suffering in order to have joy. The gospel is a pervasive sense of joy in your suffering. The gospel gives us this otherworldly resource of grace that is perfect in all of our weakness. It is a peace in the throes of conflict because we have Christ in our chaos. And I don't know if there's a person in here who doesn't have chaos in their life. <coughs> if you are, please introduce yourself to me after the service so I can pray for your delusion. Because everybody has pain. There's no one that walked through this. I know every one of you. I've been, I've had coffee with everybody in this room, I think. If you come in here feeling like, oh boy, you know, it was a rough day getting to church because everyone seems to have their act together but me. Spoiler alert. Welcome to those who've been united to Christ, saved by Christ, who gather on Sundays to have a gospel IV stuck in us again so that he can do his renewing work. 
so that we hate our sin, turn from it, get nauseated by it, and love Jesus and love our neighbor. That's what the gospel does. But before we enjoy the truth of what the gospel does, we've got to be recalibrated into what the gospel is. And what the gospel is, is you are united to the one who didn't break and snap under temptation like a cobweb. Jesus Christ passed every test to give his perfect record to you. The Son of God overcame temptation because he turned to his Father's strength perfectly. And you and I fall into temptation because we turn to our Father for strength inconsistently. But God's grace for you, church, covers your every failure completely. And he is now, by his great grace, reforming you to turn to him increasingly. Let's pray.